Brother Danny is a walking miracle. Just more and more things happening, but God is continuing to do the work of healing. And so, um, in fact, it's probably our fault because we've been praying for him. And so um, we're just not going to let him get to the point where he can't continue to minister to everybody. So thank you, Brother Danny. All right. So we are back in our series and finishing up our series, I believe. We'll see what we have next. People of God's kingdom. This should complete chapter 13. So find your place in Matthew chapter 13. We'll be concluding with the last few verses. But let me set the stage here as we go back in just a for a couple minutes, just by way of reminder. Oh, by the way, speaking of re- reminders, one of the things Biagio didn't mention this morning is we'd still love to have you join us for prayer okay, at 845, right there in the conference room down the hallway. Please make it a priority. I know things are important to you on Sunday morning, but what more could be important than coming and praying as we lift up our hearts for the, to the Lord on uh, Sunday for especially what he's going to do. By way of reminder, you'll remember as we left Jesus last time, he was teaching through parables or by parables on the kingdom of heaven. That's the impetus for the subject of the title, the series anyway. Last time he was using a particular illustration of the dragnet. Remember that? Um, If you have the King James, it probably just says net. And you remember it was that implement that fishermen would use to cast out into the lake in various ways to gather in all kinds of fish and all kinds of things and eventually separate them. And we learned several points from that. Number one, we learned that God is using a process to get the message of salvation to his elect. It's like the, the dragnet. You remember the dragnet was the salvation, if you look at that picture, kind of like casting salvation out for all the world to hear, which is where John 3.16 comes from. But the day's coming when God will pull in the net, separate the people into the two groups. Again, this is just review. Into those that belong to him and those who do not. Separating those even who have an intellectual belief, but have no real heart belief. And then the second thing we learned is there's a limited amount of time. And that limitation is our lifetime. The psalmist says that we have about 70 years In this life, if you look at history, you look at mankind, you know that that's typically the case. Some people live much longer than that, but that's where the psalmist will say that unless God gives strength, about 80 years or so, God is not hard and fast on that, but that's pretty much the average. And so we have only this life to hear what the Lord has to say. And then last we learned learned it is our responsibility as God's people then to share the message of salvation to everybody that we can share it with, everybody who will listen and all those that we come in contact. Uh, Because it's often through believers, you and me, that God opens the hearts of his elect, the people that he has chosen from from the foundation of the world to believe. And many people who truly believed did come into the kingdom. And, And I pray that one of you here, or maybe multitudes of you here, those listening online, would be those that would hear the message of God and respond in a way so that your life is secure for eternity. Sadly, there are many people who hear the message of truth, and as we learned last time and have been hearing Jesus say, are negligent, for lack of better words, are not willing to listen to what God has to say, and will find themselves, and some have found themselves, paying the price in eternal damnation. In fact, the parable of the soils is very revealing, really. When you go back to that, as Jesus was giving that parable, if you look at the ratio there, it's four to one. Out of every four people, we're told, at least, and this is not a hard and fast rule either, but it's interesting as the Lord gives us those people of the soils, as the soil is the word of God, and uh, the, the heart, rather, and the word is planted, the seed is planted, only uh, one out of four actually heard the message and responded in the way that God would have them to respond. And so uh, people have often said, you know, gosh, how, how populated is heaven going to be? I mean, so many people profess to be believers, and you know, I just wonder sometimes, and this is nothing hard and fast either. I don't have any exact numbers on this. It's not my business. But I just do wonder how many people are there going to actually be in heaven? It's an interesting subject, isn't it? Well, we do know that it's going to be the people who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, with all of that being said now, we come to the end of this chapter, and Jesus brings it together in a culmination that's very, very 
um, remarkable, and it's also very difficult to hear. And so I kind of think this whole chapter has been that way. As he's been very clearly proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, I would hope that you'd listen with attentive ears as Danny was just praying, uh, because um, it's, it's hard to swallow uh, this last section here, but it's very necessary. What we often fail to realize is that unbelief doesn't just create problems for people for eternity. That's bad enough. And that should be enough reason for anybody to turn their heart over to the Lord. But unbelief is really at the root of a lot of other effects within this life and within the life of the church, which is what we see here in this last section. And so I've titled this part, The Effects of Unbelief. The Effects of Unbelief. So stand with me as we read verses 53 through 58 to close out this section. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown and began teaching in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where'd this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. All right, you may be seated. Now again, just setting the stage here, I wanted to give you a little bit of a visual here as we've been following Jesus along his journey. You remember that Capernaum now had become his base or his ministry base for probably about the last year as far as the context go and context goes and uh, there were many miracles that he did you've been with us if you have been with us you know that if not you can go back and read that all of that was to prove who he is you remember Jesus would eventually say if you don't believe me for what I say look at my things that I do look at the miracles that I've done they alone testify to who I am in fact, let me show you this little quick PowerPoint, if I may. I hope you'll be able to read it. No, it's pretty small. Um, this up in the upper side here. Sorry, Christy, I should have had you enlarge that. But this just lists all of the things that he had done up there in the number eight. If you're looking online, you're only seeing the number eight and all the rest of them, of the various things that he had done while there in Capernaum. But even at that, we know and, and have known now that people still rejected him. I mean, it's just kind of amazing. It's shocking, really, that Jesus could do all the things that he did and still be so opposed. And that opposition was either a blatant opposition, as we've seen from the Pharisees, or an opposition of indifference, just a, a neglect, a negligence on even really caring. And so the spectrum is pretty broad there. But that neglect and that indifference or whatever you want to call it would make Capernaum a very dangerous place to be. In fact, the Lord would pronounce a judgment upon Capernaum. If you go back to chapter 11, you will remember this. He says, Oh, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? In other words, absolutely you will not. And this is why you will, actually, he says, you will descend to Hades for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, and you know about Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. In other words, I did less in Sodom. Of course, that's Old Testament, but Jesus was the one who was doing the work there, making it very personal. If I'd, he did less there than he did in Capernaum and saying they would have remained just by that. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for that land in the day of judgment than for you. That's a very stinging indictment from the Lord. In fact, John MacArthur tells us in his commentary that history records that Capernaum, after this, never really recovered. And I'm just talking about recovered from the time that the Lord was with them. In fact, today, even now, and you can look at this on the map, you can do a a Google search or research on this, and you can see that the city is virtually in a state of ruin. Uh, some of the ruins are there. They've been preserved just by time. But there are no real houses. There are no people that identify themselves as people from Capernaum. In fact, for a while, history tells us that the town and synagogue had some growth, but over 
that short period of time that they did exist, and through excavations, there is proof that more and more pagan influence began to creep in to the point where they've even recognized that the synagogue of the day had uh, features like animal worship, if you can imagine. This is the Jewish synagogue, and uh, it had just gone downhill so much, even into the place of worshiping mythological figures. And so it's really a very sad, compelling, uh, and a very compelling ending to a city that had had such great um, blessings from the Lord himself. It's just really, really tragic. I mean, if you think with me now, this is the city that literally had the glory of the Lord displayed in front of them. Just an amazing thing. So many wonderful things that the Lord did. And I just hope that you think about that for a minute. Just pause on that thought that here was the Lord himself, the Lord of eternity, the Lord of glory, performing miracle after miracle after miracle, speaking and talking and interacting with the people. And yet this was their end. And so I think we'd be wise to learn, if nothing else, just something as simple as that. That when the Lord enters into a place, he has great plans of doing work there. But that work is also dependent upon the hearts of the people. Now from there, we're told in Matthew that he goes now to his hometown of Nazareth. And I think we've got another PowerPoint there. Hopefully this one's a little bit bigger. Nope, not much. You can see Capernaum's up there in the north. Again, if you're watching on the screen, the red circle there, uh, the Sea of Galilee is off to the right as you're looking at the screen. And then Nazareth is just a little further down between that and the Dead Sea. <coughs> we'll have to work on our... our our picture views for you. But you'll remember Nazareth. It's very familiar. Uh, that was the place that uh, Joseph and Mary, Jesus' earthly parents, uh, took him to after their return from Egypt. That was when they were told by the angel after his birth to flee to uh, Egypt, that was. And then after Herod died, they went back to Nazareth and settled there. And you can see all that in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, but it was there in Nazareth that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, would uh, begin his trade, evidently. Maybe he was doing that before this, but evidently learned, uh, began his trade. And Jesus grew up as the oldest of the children under Joseph and no doubt learned the trade himself, whatever that was. Now, mostly we think of him as being Joseph being a carpenter, but it, the word could, could be uh, described as being a craftsman of sorts, a builder, somebody could have been uh, a furniture, could have been just a various sorts of kinds of things. Uh, but it was there that Jesus lived and learned and, and became a tradesman himself, along with his uh, other brothers that are mentioned here and his sisters uh, growing up together. And here are the names of them. In fact, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. The sisters aren't mentioned, at least in this context. But just as a side note, uh, this really refutes and disputes everything that the view of the Catholic belief of the uh, perpetuity or the perpetual virginity, rather, of, of Mary uh, really does not exist. And that's one of the foundations of the Catholic Church, that uh, Mary remained a virgin all of her life. But obviously this dispels that completely as false. Now Luke will tell us, if you go to Luke chapter 4, Luke will tell us that Jesus had begun his ministry, and actually after he had begun his ministry, he did go back to Nazareth at one time before Matthew records what we just read, and at that time, the people first welcomed him back. It was kind of like, hey, here's Jesus, he's come home, you know, this little boy that grew up here that we knew all about, and he and his family. And they were very gracious to him. You can see that in verse 22 said, Luke writes that they were speaking well of him. Imagine it's kind of like that guy that's gone off and we're hearing all kinds of great things about you and you've come back. And they're wondering at his gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Kind of that mesmerized thought of, oh, look at how well he's done. He's grown up to be such a such quite the young man. But Luke then will quickly go into the next couple verses and tell us that their warm welcomed turned really sour pretty quickly because Jesus rebukes them by saying in verse 24, 
no prophet is welcome in his hometown. I say to you truly, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months with a, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You know what Jesus is doing? To their warm welcome, he's saying, you didn't welcome anybody in the name of God. In fact, you so rejected every attempt by God to either warn you or to bless you that he went to the Gentiles. And everyone, both of these illustrations are Gentile uh, results of that. And so you can imagine now as they're first warmly considering who Jesus is, their love for him is beginning to ratchet down because he's rebuking them for who they think they are. In fact, they would despise him so much, Luke tells us going on in verse 28, that they pushed him out of the city and tried to throw him off a cliff. That warm welcome turned sour really, really quickly. Now, I give you all of that because we need to know the context of it, but it also helps us to understand the historical um, dangerous work behind the heart of unbelief and how quickly unbelief can go badly and what it does to a person, what it can do to a family, what it can do to a church, what it can do to just about any society. And so let me give you the first of a few points here that we see, at least that I see out of this particular section, is number one, unbelief causes a lack of understanding of God's ability. And you see this right in verse 54. I'm not going to reread that again. You have that in front of you. But it does tell us that, as I mentioned a second ago, that this is now Matthew's account of Jesus' second time coming back to Nazareth. Okay? I gave you Luke's account, but this is the second time. And their question in verse 54 really lets us know they still remembered pretty well Jesus' first visit back home. I mean, you don't just try to throw somebody off of a cliff and not forget about that, or forget about that pretty quickly. And so their statement of, isn't this Jesus, this little guy or this person from Nazareth, is kind of the same thing. But Matthew says they were still astonished. I mean, they were still amazed at what they were hearing. You know, news travels fast, right? And so Jesus was still healing around the various areas, and his wisdom was growing incredibly, at least what he was displaying for the people. And what made them more mystified was the fact that he had never been taught by the rabbis. He had never gone through any kind of official or public or, or, or specific schooling by the teachers who were the legit teachers of the Jewish law. And so they were just blown in their minds, kind of. How, how can he be this way? Well, we know the answer to that, don't we? Because he truly was the Messiah, and he is the Messiah, and he was proving that. But they didn't want to believe that because here comes the point. People who choose to live in unbelief cannot and will not accept the power of God. That's an important point. It's really the point of the parable of the soils, going back to that again. I've already mentioned that once this morning, but if you remember, the hard soil represents the person who is unwilling to open their heart to God. And unwilling is the key point there because the soil will not accept it. That's what Jesus is saying in the parable. The heart is the soil. And so when the word of God is cast upon it because the heart is already in unbelief, it's not going to accept anything that God is able to do. And when that's the case, you're left basically with a lack of confusion and a lack of understanding about really who God is. And that was the case in point in the people, with the people in Nazareth. If we wanted to stretch this out in our day and even some times past, we could say that this is a perfect illustration of how even people who profess to be believers and proclaimers of the truth often miss the point of who God is. You take any liberal church or any liberal seminary, today that is great in their intellectual understanding but no real heart understanding because they actually live in unbelief except for the facts 
of what they want to believe, it becomes a pertinent and a very real illustration. Because the reality is, people like that, organizations, churches, seminaries like that, only give to you what they want you to know and what they believe themselves, and they basically throw out the rest. And all that's because they delight in their intellectualism. That's what I was saying a second ago. They just have a mind that says, I want to know, give me the facts, but I'll choose which facts I decide to believe. Instead of taking the entirety of God's word for what it says. Just this morning, uh, Ryan and Patty and I were talking about in the new members class that we as a church believe in the inerrant word of the Lord. We believe in the full giving of the gospel, the full giving of all the word is. That's why we go through the Bible verse by verse, because every part of it is relevant. Every section of the scripture is relevant for us. But people like this don't want the entirety of the word of God. And this has to be the case because someone who comes out of seminary who doesn't believe in the entirety of the word of God is ridiculous. How could that be the case? Unless it's born out of a heart of unbelief or they come out of a seminary of all places and only believe parts of the Bible. And there are lots of people like that. There are many people today who will just accept and take what they want Scripture to say. But the bottom line is, if you don't take all of what Scripture says about who Jesus is and all that he can do, then basically you're just living a lie. You're not really understanding anything at all and your heart is truly in unbelief and really doesn't believe in who Jesus is as God at all. In other words, you can't have part of him and not have all of him. And I think the reality is, is that when your heart's in that kind of unbelief, no matter how clear the evidence is, and let's think about the people now in Nazareth, no matter how clear, literally Jesus is doing miracles all the time, doesn't matter how compelling the truth is, you're not going to believe, you're not going to be convinced. And that comes as a result of what we're talking about through this whole subject, that is there is an unbelief there that stymies and hinders the belief of who God really is. I mean, you could come to a church for years and still live a life of unbelief. You can hear the message of God for years and that God is a God of grace who's come to save you. And if your heart is in unbelief, you're not going to accept it. You're not going to believe it. You can still walk away either in that total unbelief or masking your unbelief by saying things like, and this is the opposite effect, I'm too bad, I've done too many things that there's no way God could save me from or accept me from, and so I can't accept God for who he is. Really, see, that's nothing more than a heart of unbelief, dictating to what they think God is and what he's capable of doing. It's no different. You can go the other direction or you can go this direction, whichever. It's all out of the same thing. Now, that leads us to the second thing, which is unbelief makes it impossible to accept anything other than what makes human or earthly sense. Okay? If you don't accept the foundation of what we were just talking about, then unbelief, secondly, makes it impossible to accept anything other than what makes human or earthly sense. If you look at verses 55 and 56, Matthew makes it clear that the people of Nazareth knew Jesus and his family. That's pretty obvious. It was not like this was some un misunderstood kind of thing. They knew Mary. They must have known Joseph as well, I would think. They grew up there. They'd been there for years now. Jesus is probably about 30 years old by this point. And so he came there not long after his birth, probably about two, three years old, something like that. So a lot of years had transpired with him being in Nazareth, and it's not a big place. I mean, these people probably, and I'm assuming here, had made some business transactions with Joseph. Maybe Joseph had done some work for them. Maybe they purchased something from him. I don't know. We're not told any of that, but it certainly stands to reason. And they certainly knew their children. They're, they mentioned them by name here. And so when it came time for Jesus to reveal himself for who he really is, they couldn't get past what made sense to them humanly because they were just looking with their human eyes. But again, that's what unbelief does. In other words, there was no way they could accept that Jesus knew 
the Jesus they knew and the family that he came from could be the long-awaited, anticipated Messiah. Here's this, we know Joseph, we know his mom, I mean, here's his children, we've seen all the good, the bad, and the ugly with them, not Jesus, but with them. So this just doesn't make sense. Again, that's what happens in a heart that is stuck and bent on unbelief. Instead of saying, aha, maybe God can do something that I don't understand. Now, what didn't help in their minds was that nothing good came from Nazareth. Do you remember the situation in John chapter 1 when Philip comes to get Nathaniel and he says, I've found the Messiah. Come and see, come and see. Tells him he's from Nazareth and Nathaniel's response is, is there anything good comes out of Nazareth? I mean, so the mindset was understood that that was kind of like the second class. I want to be careful with my wording here, but the place where nothing good happens and you're telling me that the Messiah has come out of that place? No, I'm not going to believe that. But you see, again, the point is that's what unbelief does. It tries to make logical sense out of everything because that's part of the human heart and part of what sin does. I guess what I'm saying is to you that time and time again, all kinds of people around the world and even the church, which is really more pertinent for us this morning, dismiss God's work because it doesn't make sense to them. That's a fact. Because they logically cannot agree that God could do something that's outside the realm of my thinking. We have a tendency as people to look at facts and say, it must fit these facts or God's not in it. And the reality is, beloved, that God is capable of working outside of anything that we understand. People will say, that just couldn't be God through that person. Isn't that what they were saying about Jesus? I mean, we've done that before in our minds. There's no way God could be speaking to me through that person of all people or through those circumstances. How could God be doing that? That doesn't make sense at all. Or that decision, how could God be involved in that or whatever it is, whether it be about money or the timing of decisions or the life events that are occurring. If it doesn't make sense to our brains and the way we have the built the construct of life for us and ourselves spiritually, there's no way God could be in it. But again, I ask you, when has God ever done something that made human sense? Look at the prophets. Do you remember Moses? I mean, just take the big ones. When God said to Moses, go get my people out of Egypt, Moses' logical sense said to him, that's ridiculous. Pharaoh's never going to let them go. He did everything he could to get out of it. you remember the story? Go back to Exodus and you can read this clearly. And God basically says, Moses, don't you know who I am? Put your hand into your chest. Remember, he moves it. It's leprous. Gives him several miracles like that. He puts it back in. It's clean again. Go and do what I'm telling you to do. God then leads them out of the wilderness and drives them right to the, to the face of the Red Sea. Any logical mind, any military mind would say that's a terrible situation when your enemy's right on your heels. What does God do? He opens the Red Sea and they walk through on dry land. How about Joshua? As God turned over the reins to him from Moses, did God make sense to them when God said to Joshua, march around the city of Jericho seven times? And on the seventh day, go seven times, and the last time, blow the trumpets and the walls will come down. Again, any military leader is going to go, that's ridiculous. If you're in the army under that leader, you're going to go, I think I'll go have lunch. You guys go ahead. Or how about Gideon, when God says, um, you're going to go against the Midianites. Great. Okay, we got 30,000 men who are ready to go. Okay, I want you to whittle that down to 300. Uh, what? Yeah, 300. And God defeated them. An amazing display. 
And probably the greatest, not probably, but the greatest example of God not, God not making sense is the cross. The cross of Christ makes no sense that God would rescue a person for eternity through the death of another person. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross, I'm reading in verse 18, is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You talk to the world out here about this guy who came to the earth and did all this stuff, died on a cross, believe in him, surrender your life to him, commit your life to him, and that's your ticket to heaven. They're going to go, what? No. That's bogus. Well, Paul says, except for those of us who are being saved by the power of God, makes perfect sense. Skip to verse 20. Paul writes, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You should underline that. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jump down to verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. You know what Paul's saying? Here's why God does what he does. Because if he didn't do it that way, you'd try to take credit for it. And he's not going to let that happen. And so stand back and look at your life just for a minute and you realize of all the things that have happened in your life that you can't explain, that turned out in amazing ways, you're able to say, God did that. Because there's no way I could have come up with that. And every one of us who are believers will understand that well. The truth is, beloved, the logical part of your brain, the logical part of your human understanding is irrelevant to God and his ability. And I hope you write that down. All of us need to remember that the logic of our brains is irrelevant to God when it comes to his ability to do whatever he's going to do. In other words, what you believe and what you don't believe about him doesn't keep him from doing his work. He's not somehow saying, oh my goodness, they don't believe, so how am I going to accomplish this? It doesn't work like that. What he wants from us, from you and me, is to believe him and to trust him. That's what he wants. Trust him that he is God and he sees past and is capable of working outside of the realm of human logic and reasoning. And then let him do his work in us and through us to accomplish his purposes, even if it doesn't make earthly sense. Listen, even if it doesn't make earthly sense. Because most things with God don't make earthly sense, right? Can you tell someone how you have the Holy Spirit living in you? I can't. I mean, I can tell you the process, but I can't tell somebody how that works. That's foolishness to somebody. But to those of you who are filled with the Holy Spirit because of your salvation, you know it's not foolishness. You remember well your old life, don't you? You remember well how much God has changed you. Can you explain how he did that? I can't. That's the mystery of God. That's the power of God. That's the ability of God to do things that make no sense to us in a logical means. Okay, that takes us to number three. Unbelief, and you kind of see the hierarchy progressing here, causes fleshly responses to the Spirit's work. Unbelief causes fleshly responses to the Spirit's work. Look at verse 57. And they took offense at him. That is a very fleshly response. And notice, this was the people who knew Jesus best 
They were the ones who were offended by him. How can that be? They knew him, meaning their flesh was aroused. And that happens because when a person is unwilling to hear the truth about Christ or from Christ, they turn to the only response they do have, the flesh. There's only one or the other. It's either the mind of the Spirit working in and through us, or it's our mind which is totally fleshly, doing the thinking and the processing. And you hear that kind of reaction from the world all the time. When the church makes a decision or the church is in the news or something happens, the world's reaction is always fleshly. Why? Because they don't have the Spirit of God living in them. But sadly, the church often reacts and responds the same way which is not the way it should be. And fleshly reactions happen in the church because of this same idea of unbelief, which could be as simple as, if we look at the big spectrum here, it could be as simple as saying, I've been going to church, this particular church, all my life, and I don't need to repent of anything. A friend of mine told me about a person who was in leadership in their church. This is in another state. He's really having a struggle with the leadership there. And uh, he was telling me about how one of the elders of all people said, I don't need to come to the church for a prayer meeting. I can pray at home. Okay, that makes logical sense, doesn't it? But that's totally missing the point of why leadership should get together to pray. You see, there's only one response. If it's not from the spirit, it's going to be from the flesh. Or it could be, Something like this, I am twice as old as that young preacher and I'm not going to listen to anything he says to me. That happens too. And I'm just giving you the spectrum here, as I said. Or it could go full-blown as much as fights in the parking lot. I don't like to bring those things up, and this is prior to me. Some of you may remember this way back many, many, many years ago. Many years ago, that's what happened here. I'm told there was a fight in the front and a fight in the back from the deacons. Even the Albemarle police were called. You think that can't happen in a church? Yeah, it can. It happens all the time. Well, when the Spirit of God is not at work in the heart, the only response is the flesh, even over spiritual matters. Isn't that amazing? Think about what's happening in the context. The Lord of glory has come home to his earthly home And the people who knew him best responded out of their flesh. Happens. In fact, numerous times over the years, you have responded very well to when I present something or the elders present something to you that we believe the Lord is telling us. But there have also been times when your flesh responded. And I'm not talking about in a mean-spirited, evil way. I'm just talking about logically, what fleshly response often exhibit. The logical, the nonsensical. How do we do this? How's it going to work? What does that mean? So we're not immune to this. We all have the same issue. I'm just simply saying, based on what we see here in Nazareth, With Jesus, when you and I operate in unbelief, it'll lead to some very troublesome outcomes, or at least potentially troublesome outcomes. Notice the Lord's final words to his people in the hometown. Look at with me in verse 58. He did not do many miracles there. Now, wouldn't you just love to stop right there, put the period there? Because then we could say the Lord didn't do many miracles there because he just needed to get on to his work in other places. But that's not where the sentence stops. The Spirit very specifically says, here's why. Because of their unbelief. That's why he stopped. That's why he didn't do it. It wasn't because he couldn't. It was because they didn't believe leading us to the final point about what unbelief does. Unbelief often limits God from doing the work that he really wants to do. Unbelief often limits God 
from doing the work he wants to do. Now, I say often because the Lord doesn't need any of us to do his work. Let's be clear about that, right? We, we know that. The Lord just doesn't need you and me to accomplish what he needs to do. He doesn't need our abilities. He doesn't even need our faith. He needs nothing from us. But he chooses to use us in the process and gives us the privilege of being a part of what he's doing. But when we reject him out of a lack of faith in that unbelief category, <clears throat> he may do a few things, but like we see here in the text, nothing like he would if we truly believed. And I just have to believe that. Now, that doesn't mean in saying that, that God is not going to do everything that he's promised that he will do. For instance, he has promised he will meet our needs. That's his promise to us. I'll provide all your needs according to my riches and glory. He's promised he will never leave us or forsake us. Very foundational promises. True things that he will never break because he promised that he will do them. But there is also that sowing, reaping principle at work with him. This is why he speaks this way so much. It's why he taught like he did in parables. Meaning that what you put in the ground spiritually is the same thing as the amount you put in the ground physically if you're in a planting sense. Whatever you put in the ground, that's what you're going to get back. The ratio may be a little different, but predominantly it's going to be basically the same. If you have a field the size of, of all of Charlottesville and you planted that, you're going to get a huge yield. But if you have a field the size of a backyard garden, that's all you're going to get. That makes perfect sense, right? Well, the Lord is saying, translate that now into spiritual things. He is basically saying to Nazareth, look, I wanted to plant my seed, my word throughout this whole region, but I couldn't do it here. I chose not to do it here is the better way to say it. Not because I couldn't do it, but because you wouldn't believe. And so he left. He left. You know, my greatest fear, beloved, I'm going to just be very personal with you. As a pastor, is that you stop living by faith. That's my greatest fear. For year after year after year, we have followed the word of the Lord. And my greatest fear has always been in the back of my mind that we would be a church that would stop living by faith and start operating out of what makes sense to us, logical sense. And there's a time and a place for that. But we can't be the church of God and live saying we believe one thing and operating in another way. It just doesn't work that way. And Jesus is proving that to us. Where we start trusting our own abilities, our own wisdom, what again makes logical sense to us, instead of saying, you know what? This doesn't make any sense to me at all. I don't see how this is going to work. But you know what? I have a big God who can do the impossible with just a little bit of faith. That's the kind of church that the Lord wants. That's his people. That's what he was looking for in Nazareth. But he didn't find it. And so he gave them some token things. He was fulfilling his promises but he left. A hugely sad indictment. That's just my greatest fear for the church here, that we would be like that Nazareth, that we become so familiar with the text, so familiar with who Jesus is intellectually, and even in some things that we see him do, some minor things that are big in the minor scale, but we never really believe to the point of where God just blows our socks off. I mean, let's just ask the question. Do you this morning believe that the God who parted the Red Sea is the same God that we're talking about right now? I mean, think about that. Do you believe he's truly the same God who in the Old Testament could make a steel or metal axe head float? I mean, last time I threw an axe in the water, and I've never done that, but 
throw a big chunk of metal in the water, guess what's going to happen? Unless you're an engineer and you're making a boat, and I understand all the human things behind that. It's going to fall to the bottom, right? But not in God's economy. How can God rescue our souls for eternity by nailing his son to a cross? I don't know. I just know he did. And that's where we need to keep our foundation. We need to believe that God is capable of doing what to us is so with him incapable of doing. And so I hope we never lose that. And that's not to say that following God is not without wisdom. You know, we're not talking about just casting wisdom into the ocean here. We've used this illustration many times before, and that is, it's not faith to go out and sit in the middle of Airport Road and have our service. Now, could God protect us? Could he? Could God somehow make the trucks and cars just go right through us and never affect us? Yes, he could do that. But he's also wanted us to live by wisdom. The problem is wisdom often trumps our faith. Wisdom often replaces our faith. And we hide behind wisdom instead of hiding behind faith. There's a big difference there. And I think you say, well, give me an example of that. Okay, well, in my life, I can only use my life as an example. And forgive the story, I've told you this before, but I just remember when God called me into ministry, we were like, Debbie and I were like, how are we going to do that? I don't know how we're going to do that. I was working full-time. We had two children at the time. I knew I needed to go back to school full-time. There was no money for that. But God in his great glory provided everything that we needed to the point where Liberty owed us money when we were done. How do you explain that? Can't do it. Everything about us was saying, this is not going to make sense. My dad said to me, how are you going to do that? I said, Dad, I don't know. I just know this is what God has said to do. And so we stepped out and we did that and God made the way. That's how we met Lawana Holman and Pete at Berean at our first church. And now we have the blessing of Peter and Lindsay here and the children. You never know what God's going to do. But you know, it could have been so easy for Debbie and me to just say, man, I don't know, the money's just not going to make it, so I think we'll just bag that. Tragedy you realize that we would not be here with you if that were the case, if that were the decision. Now, don't laugh at that and don't make jokes about that. You might be saying, yeah, I wish that you'd made that decision. Okay, <laughs> I get that. I'm just simply saying, folks, through the same thing here, is that when I read this last section here, it's staggering to me because, well, let me put it this way. Can you imagine what Jesus wanted to do in his hometown? Think about it. He knew those people. That was coming home. Everybody in that town was like family. Of all the places that Jesus must have wanted so badly to do the most work was in his own town with the people that he grew up with. Can you imagine how his heart was broken? For one reason because they would not believe. They would not believe. And so he left. So, what do you want to see God do? What do you hope God can do? Do you believe that God can fix your marriage? Do you believe that God is capable of taking care of whatever issue you have going on? I mean, do you really believe that? Or is it more, yeah, of course I know God can do that, but I don't know. Well, there's a, a certain understanding about that in a human level, but the reality is as spiritual people, we just throw that lack of understanding away and we just say, no, I'm trusting my God. I just called, I just uh, texted Brother Jay Roberts yesterday. You know, Jay and Elizabeth are the ones who do the prison ministry. We've been supporting them for quite a while. Jay's health has really gone downhill in fact, he's at the University of Virginia. They're not 
expecting to be able to do much for him now. He told me yesterday that they've put him on palliative care, which is just one step away from um, um, hospice. And I said to him by text, I said, Brother Jay, I'm just praying, and this really is my prayer, I'm praying that God will leave you here to continue to do the work that he's called you to do. You know, Jay goes into some tough places, he and Elizabeth, kind of like Howie and Debbie Campbell. Jay and Elizabeth go into the prison systems and the jails, and they deal with the, the, the people there and, and have a wonderful ministry. Uh, Jay's only 60 years old, 61 maybe, something like that, or right at that, 59. And... Um, his days look like they're going to be over. But you know what Jay's response to me was? Brother Bruce, thank you so much. I'm, I'm praying the same way, but, but really I'm just praying his will be done. See, that's the heart. You see, the, the faith is there saying, I know God can do this. I know God can do this. And I'm hoping and trusting that God will heal my body. But if he chooses not to, I'll be okay with that too. The difference is with Jay and people like Jay, he's looking to God by faith instead of going, well, the doctors say it's all over, so I guess there's nothing God can do. You see the difference? It's the surrendering to the human mind and the human logic. Instead of saying, man says this, but I know God. And he can do far more. So what do you need him to do? What do you believe he can do? Are you trusting him? Are you believing him? Are you surrendered to his will and not your own? Are you relying more on your logic, which is turning into unbelief? Or are you really living your life for him? It's good questions. It's what I think about. And I don't want to be selfish about what I think about. So I want you to hear the same thing. It doesn't matter what it is. I believe that God wants to do big things in our lives. I don't know what that means. I don't know what God has plans. But what I do know is, based on the authority of God's word, if you and I say to him, no, through our unbelief, God will love us. He will always do that. He will sustain us and we will still go to heaven. But we will never really see the power of God at work. And this proves it. He left. He left. Not that he couldn't have done the work. He didn't do the work because they didn't believe. And that's a spiritually dangerous place to be. As quickly as God blesses, God can just as quickly take away. Right? So let's march forward being people of faith and let's not live by our unbelief. Are you with me on that? Let's be people of faith. He's going to test us. He will present ideas and concepts and things to us to see whether we're really willing and if we are walking by faith. And he will be more than faithful to prove to us he's with us. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, all the way through this chapter, and, and really even up before this, but especially this chapter, has been very challenging. But we understand as students of your word that uh, that's the God that you are. You challenge our flesh. You challenged everything about the people that you encountered, not because you were trying to create some problem for them, but because you had so much more planned for them. Lord, and I just want to thank you on behalf of our church here that you have seen fit to establish Laurel Hill many years ago. Just this morning, we were looking in the records again. I think it was 1877, something like that, that you began the organization of Laurel Hill across 29. And here we are, these many, many, many years later, so many lives come and gone, so many souls, baptisms, some rejections, some good times, some bad times, but yet you have been faithful to us. Every month, we or every quarter, we have business meetings, and, and it's just amazing how you just continually sustain us. But Lord, I would pray and do pray and have been praying that we as a people would not be satisfied with just being sustained. That's nothing for you. 
you don't need our money. You don't need anything from us. Lord, my prayer and our prayer is that you would use us for your glory. That you would so penetrate our hearts that we would be effective in helping others to come to know you and effective in being ministers of your gospel in our homes, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever that might be. Lord, please, we beg of you, not allow us to get to the place where we operate out of unbelief, where we live by our own intellectualism and our own human wisdom to the point where faith has no guiding power and influence in us. Lord, don't let us get there. Protect us from that. And Lord, we'll do all that we know how with your help to be faithful to you and what you call us to do. And so we pray all of this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we close before Ham starts singing, and Missy is, um, I certainly want to make available to you if you have a need to pray about. Brother Craig's here and others. Jeff is coming up and if you need a lady to talk to, ladies, um, we have somebody that can do that with you or some others. Um, this is not to embarrass you. You know, we've started this just a few weeks ago again, just to give you an opportunity right now as the Spirit is speaking to your hearts to, um, to just come and maybe you just want to chat about something. Maybe you just want to talk to the Lord about something and have somebody pray with you. And just take this moment to do that, okay? Whatever the need on your heart is, just do that. Everyone stand, please. There is an endless song echoes in my soul. I hear the music ring, and though the storms may
sing. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much. Lord, we just praise your name for all the blessings that you give to us. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you provide. Lord, we thank you for our family here. We thank you for each and every one who comes to serve you. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus who, in serving you, sacrificed himself for us. It's in his name I pray. Amen.